Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got a new Kuka. Anu is the associate partner at IBM, where she looked after the cybersecurity strategy, risk and compliance in Australia and New Zealand region. Prior to this, she held many leadership positions in risk management, data and technology risk and compliance at the organization like the Australia, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac Group, KPMG and also Latitude Finance Services. Anu is also an internationally acclaimed keynote speaker at 49 plus industry conferences in nine countries. Anu and I start the conversation talking about how she was moving from her career in the early days of tax into compliance to audit and gradually moving into data and AI and as well as the risk and compliance sector. We talk about how these different experience have helped her to have a well-rounded career and becoming a multi-facage professional. We then move on to discuss the core subject of this podcast interview, which is about data security and risk management. Anu then share her framework of the three use of data risk management. Without spoiling the episode, I'm going to let you to listen and find out what is this three use of data risk management. And I can assure you it's well worth to find out and adapt this framework in your organization. We extended of this topic in covering the advices from Anu, specifically for data leaders on how they can embrace themselves to safeguard their data and how to have a sound risk management framework in their organization and prepare for the future risks. We also spoke about some of the core principles that she would give to the senior management on how to build a modern risk-resilient organization, especially in the world where data is becoming more and more important than ever before. And we finally conclude the podcast interview, how to manage the upskilling the employees in adopting the new emerging technology and the subsequent risk if you are not upskilling them appropriately. Now, if you are a senior manager or data leader who want to bring more emerging technology into your organization, you would want to listen to Anu in terms of how to prepare yourself in managing the risk that comes along with all of this emerging technology. Now, that is not to say you should not bring on the emerging technology, but it's about how you manage them and equally How do you even quantify them to make sure that you bring all the stakeholders on the same page using the same terminology that your stakeholder can understand? And this 
includes whether your CFO, CEO, or your board members who can understand the language on your plan of how you are going to safeguard the organization with a sound risk management while bringing in the emerging technology. If this is what keeping you up at night, this surely is the episode that you wouldn't want to miss. If you have any question for myself or Andrew, feel free to send us a voice message or a message on LinkedIn. The LinkedIn profile for Andrew is going to be in the post and the show note of this podcast episode. Finally, if you enjoy more of this podcast episode discussing about the use of data and analytics for your organization to compete in the industry, make sure you click the subscribe button and I'll bring you more episodes like this. I am your host, Jason Ten, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Thank you. Hello, Anu. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm excited Hi, to have you today. Thank you for having me. Now, I'll just start this thing in a bit more about your background because I think that's important, especially for those young graduate and young professional who wants to get into the risk management, who want to get into the data analytics, right? So my very first question for you is, you started your career in accounting and gradually moved into the risk and compliance sector and finally incorporate data and AI into your career. So the question for you then is, would you say that your career trajectory into the security and data was a natural outcome of breakdown in accounting and IT? It's a really good question. And to be honest, I would say no. I would absolutely say no. I think it's been a, my 20 years has been a career journey of focused on trying new things. So I have continuously try to upskill and reinvent myself so that I could stay relevant. And I actually started out after my uni degree, which was in Bachelor of Commerce Accounting and Information Systems. I started in tax. So I moved through tax to internal audit, strategy, risk compliance, governance and regulation, then into third-party risk, cyber and data risk. So I would actually, it's not a normal trajectory and what I planned. It's been more about a mindset of how do I stay relevant? How do I upskill? And connecting the dots between the last role and the new role to try something new. I actually have a lot of friends working in the tags. I, I wonder what would they think about if I share this episode with them and say, hey, you know what? You can take this as an aspiration and move into the IT as well. Now, joke aside, for the young professional who have the similar background and aspire to have this career like this, apart from what you have just shared, what advice would you give to them then? Honestly, and because this was not some planned, calculated move where 20 years I said, I will start in tax and I will end up in cyber risk, because it wasn't planned, if I think about sort of three key ingredients over the last 20 years, one has really been this, I guess, a hobby or a passion of mine to continuously learn. I love learning new things. I love trying new things. So I would say try for anyone wanting to try new things in their career, move into different domains. 
is think about how do you upskill? How do you continuously learn? If you're in tax now, have you? why not learn about tax and technology? If you're in data, why not learn about new emerging technology? You're learning something adjacent, so you're constantly upskilling and staying relevant. So I think that would be my first advice. The second one, when I think about the 20 years, is say yes to new opportunities. Moving from tax into risk and internal audit was something that was brand new to me. I could use my tax knowledge, but I have to learn risk and internal audit. So I think the second sort of advice I would say is get out of your comfort zone and say yes to those opportunities. When someone comes and gives you a chance, say yes. Each of those times I've moved into new things, it's been someone who's given me a chance or trusted me and I've had to push myself and believe in myself, even if I was scared, to go, actually, let's give this a try. What's the worst thing? If it fails, then I can just go back to what I was doing beforehand. But if it works, then I get to learn and do something new and exciting. So I think that was one of the, was the second thing. And then the third thing kind of wraps up both things is having a mindset. I think if I think back 20 years ago, I didn't start in tax thinking that for my rest of life, I was going to be in tax. So I would say anyone who is in data right now, cyber or data science or operational risk or data analytics, have a mindset that, you know what, this is not the same thing that you have to do for the next 20 years. Have a mindset of, you know what, I'll do this for a number of years, four or five years, and then I will continue to learn and try something else. You can have multiple careers. And it's not something I thought about back then, but that's what I would say to people who are starting off their career now. I also want to say that having multiple different facades of the career, it actually really helped to strengthen and have a more of a well-rounded understanding about the business and the technology and how the things hang together is certainly something that I personally have found it very, very useful for myself as well. Do you think that is the case? Oh, absolutely. I agree. I actually just today was in a client conversation where we're going to be talking about cybersecurity, but the conversation went down risk and compliance and resiliency And so I was drawing upon my previous experience around crisis management, business continuity, supply chain, and while they're relevant for cybersecurity, but it was a whole different conversation and I was drawing on my different careers. So I would say it's very practical and useful. I love it. Now, share with us about your role at IBM. I understand you have just started a new role. What are some of the things that you would be working on in your new role? Yeah, excellent. I'm very excited to be at IBM. I would say, and this is part of you'll get to know me more, is I'm very much around what's the purpose? Why do we do a role? And what really attracted me to this role is my fantastic leader, Kylie Watson, that I work with, and also the purpose of what we're doing. We're here to help and protect Australia as a whole through the organizations and critical infrastructure organizations. So when you think about that higher purpose, we are helping secure, make sure cybersecurity is embedded in organizations, helping organizations protect themselves, which ultimately protects us as a nation. It's something I really was drawn to. What does that mean on a day-to-day? Because that's a really big purpose, but what does that mean day-to-day? And I'd always say it's kind of 
I think I found this really great role that reflects my name. So Anu stands A-N-U and A is about being an advisor. So I go and have lots of client conversations. I am the trusted advisor to CISOs and CROs and board members where I provide advice and support in terms of some of the problems they're having. For example, the recent cyber security attack, the supply chain ransomware attack. So being able to be that trusted advisor, guiding them on what kind of questions to prepare when the board is asking, what uh, what are the sort of checks and balances to do, how best to write the paper. So you're really a trusted advisor helping clients solve their cybersecurity problems. So that's what the A stands for. The other part of that A is also externally in the market. I'm speaking at a lot of industry events. I get invited to speak at a lot of client internal meetings. So there might be a board meeting or a internal security meeting where I share latest global trends to help the organization lift their maturity. So there's two parts to that advisor role. And the N in my name, NU, the N stands for, I get to really do what I really enjoy, which is coaching and mentoring people, helping other people in their career. So nurturing talent. So it's not just my direct team. I work with lots of different team members within IBM. So I'm part of Global Business Services and I work with team members from across different areas. So you get to nurture talent and help other people grow their career. And then I think finally the U stands for, in my mind, untangling risk. Whether it's cyber risk, data risk, technology risk, third-party risk, which is the area I work in, I'm constantly looking at what is the latest coming through from global. So just two weeks ago, I was having a call with the global partner in data and global partner in cybersecurity, learning about what's coming through from UK and US so we can untangle all the risks for our clients here and bring the best. So that's really what I do. I love it. I love how you use your name to come out all of those, your focus of uh, what you are doing in your professional life. I, I should really try that to do it with my name of Jason. I think it's going to be challenging, but I, I really like it. It's the first time I had heard of something like that. Oh, well. <laughs> now, I suppose part of these, when I was preparing this podcast interview, what it got me thinking is that, what is the focus that I should be really bring out for the listener for this? And I know many of us, myself included, is we like to focus on the shiny things like, you know, the AI, the machine learning, but the adoption would also come with certain risks. Given that your expertise is in the data risk management, and like you were saying, you're often not talking about this subject at various conferences. So share with us, what is data security risk management meant for you? It's a very big question. And if it's okay, I might just break it down into two components. And I'll break it down into what are some of the current risks and what are some of the emerging risks. So that everyone listening can sort of get some takeaways for what to do in their organization currently, but also put their mind to what's emerging through. And something of what I like using is a model called the three U model. And the three U's stand for data used by third parties is number one. Data used in emerging technologies, like you said, Jason, around AI and machine learning and IoT and blockchain, that's number two. And number three 
is the one that's really emerging through is data used and accessed in the cloud. So if it, I'm actually just going to cover each of those three and explain that because that will give people listening to this podcast some practical takeaways as to what they can do in their organisation. So if we think about the three U's, the first U is around data used by third parties. And what I say to people is think about for those people listening who've got kids or if you know someone who's got kids, when you send your decide to send your kids to school or childcare, you generally do some due diligence. You probably go and check out the school's performance, you check the security arrangements, you might look at the school fees, how are they performing in sports. You do a bit of due diligence to then decide where you would send your kids to school. Equally, after the first year, the second year, even quarterly term assessments, you might be checking how's your child actually performing in school? Are they getting the results? Are they happy? Do they feel safe? You're constantly checking in. You don't, I suppose you don't send your kids to school and then for five years just forget about it and go, I'm sure you'll be fine. You'll get the best results. Surely you will be happy. You'll make great friends. That doesn't happen. Like I haven't met parents who just go, that's it. There is a bit of a parent-teacher night check-in. You ask your kids when they come home. And I find it really fascinating. And that's why the first U of the data security model is around data used by third parties. And the key takeaway for your listeners here is how is data secured when third parties are using it in three critical stages? When you're onboarding a new third party, ongoing monitoring the third party, and when you exit the third party. So there are three big phases in third parties where data security is critical. And that is a very big risk that we see right now. And all the recent cyber attacks around the world constantly are referring to third parties, supply chain, or the ecosystem having a breakdown, which meant that an organization was impacted. So that is currently happening. And that is a risk that everyone needs to really have front of mind. If we then sort of turn to emerging, the second U is around data used in emerging technologies. And again, I, I like food. I'm a bit of a foodie. <laughs> so there will be some food analogies. So if you're listening, you may want to grab some food while you're listening because you might get hungry. <laughs> I've got my Indian chai here, so I'll just sip on that as well. But think about when we go out shopping or online shopping for those of us in COVID lockdown, we generally look at the ingredients label and go, what is actually inside the food? And that tells us the protein level, the carbs level, sugar level, et cetera. We, that's data. It's telling us what we are about to consume. We then make an informed decision based on that data label, whether we want to eat it or not. And if we think about data security for emerging technologies, data within machine learning, data within AI, data within Internet of Things or data in blockchain, how are we securing it? Do we know what data is inside that emerging technology? But having done a few emerging technology proof of concepts and worked with clients in this space, sometimes feels like data goes into a black box and no one really knows what's in there or how it's formatted, how it's stored, how it's being manipulated. And so an emerging risk here is really around that second U 
around data security when it's used in the emerging tech space. And then finally, the third U is around data used and accessed in the cloud. And again, I'm going to use a food analogy. If we think about, forget that we're in COVID lockdown, if we could just go out for a meal on a weekend, would we just go out for a dinner? Would we go for entree, say, to a nice Indian restaurant for some entree? And then perhaps we would go for a main, we'll go to an Italian place. And then for dessert, we'll find a nice French restaurant for our dessert. Does that sound normal? Is that what we normally do when we go out for a meal? We would go to three different restaurants because we want Indian entree and we want an Italian main and a French dessert. No, very unusual. <laughs> it's quite unusual. We, we might order three different cuisines on Uber or something. Yeah. But the point being, we're not, that's not normally how we go out and eat. We might go, okay, well, I feel like Indian today. So I'll go to an Indian restaurant and we might have entree, main and dessert. And the reason why we don't do that is... We don't split it out to multiple places. Think about the taxes, the cost, the time that it would take. But what's emerging is from a cloud perspective, and there is valid reasons to do this, but I just want to highlight that there are some security risks that we need to prepare for. In the cloud setting that's happening across the globe, and in particular in organizations, we are actually going and engaging multiple cloud providers. So there are many cloud providers and organizations are not choosing one, but they're choosing multiple cloud providers and there are benefits with those. So I'm not disagreeing, but I'm saying that is what's happening. We are engaging multiple cloud providers and we're also using multiple different types of clouds. So we've got hybrid cloud, private cloud, public cloud, community cloud. Now, when you've got multiple cloud providers and you've got multiple cloud types, you've got some security risks to think about. And that's where the third U comes in. What is the security arrangements and agreement between these multiple cloud providers? Who is responsible for what? And does it vary between each cloud provider? How does an organization make sure they've got the access and protection of their data in the different types of cloud agreed and locked in? So to me, that is the current and emerging data security risks through a 3U model that I would say that anyone listening should really ask those questions and understand what they do within their organization. Well, the last U is really an interesting one. And as much as I can understand about why all of these organizations are adopting multiple cloud strategy because they, they don't feel like they want to depend or dependent on any particular vendor. What would you be your advice for them to safeguard their data to, to make sure that it have the sound risk management, it have a sound data security while they are insisting on the multiple cloud strategy then? No, it's a very good question. So I think it comes down to a couple of things again. Like number one, we need people and organizations awareness around that this is a data security issue and it's a risk. So if we get the awareness and people see it as a problem, that's the first. That's the probably if if we've got that, then we can move into, okay, well, let's figure out what kind of data have we got stored? Who is the owner? Where are we using it? How are we using it? 
Are third parties being involved? You're kind of going through all the seven W's, understanding where the data is, who's accessing it, how they're accessing it, what's it being used for, and you're then making sure that you've got the appropriate data security strategy with the right controls around that, and that's where technology comes in handy. You don't want to make it a manual exercise. You really want to leverage the power of technology, and that's where we're seeing more and more of AI play into how do we use emerging technology like AI and machine learning to increase our security and um, strengthen our security to protect our data? Now, I know you early on you touch on that your role is about helping the organization in the uh, heavy asset infrastructure. But I suppose the question I have for you then is how the management team or the data leaders in particular of the data leaders from this area should brace themselves for the risk and also prepare for all the future risk then? Wow, that's a big question. I think I could just talk on that for like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me let me maybe distill it down to one core principle. If, As you say, if you're a leader listening to this podcast and you're a data leader in an organization or a security data person, I think the fundamental thing for me is as a leader, have you got the mindset and awareness around security by design? If we can have that as a key core principle around making sure that we have got security into the design when we're thinking about the data governance, we're building out our data strategy, is security embedded into that as part of our design, when we think about our data structure, we are thinking about how we're going to do data analytics and bring in tools. Let's consider security in that design and in that planning stage, because then when we go to implement, we know we've got everything okay. And equally, think about when you've got new projects that are being launched through the organization, whether it's transformation, digital transformation, Again, what if we had security as part of the design of those solutions, which means by the time the solutions architect and the design is done and we move towards detailed design and implementation, security is a key principle right from the beginning. So I almost call it, you know, as kids when our parents would help us cross the road and it used to be look right, look left, look right again. <laughs> That's at least what I was taught. And I would say that to a security or a data leader, all right, security to your right, security to your left, and security again to your right, and we should have everything covered. Mm, that is a good one. Now, having that security mindset, I think, is super important. But from time to time, some of these data leaders, or at least part of the organization, in, especially in a big corporation, they are frustrated that how it can be delaying the progress of the project implementation. From your experience, how would you advise them to really take a balanced look to say, it is important to have this, but equally we are mindful of the business impact if we are not progressing? You know what? That's a very common question that clients are asking. So I'm actually going to use a real client example that I'm working on right now with a client. I won't mention the name of the organization, but exactly that question where we know we've got a lot of risk, 
but we also need investment to progress and grow our business. And there will be some risks in doing that, but how do we get that funding and how do we make sure that it's a balanced decision? And what we're helping this client with is we are actually helping them quantify their risks. So we are bringing dollars to the conversation where we can quantify the risk and say, right now, you have got, say, 50 million risk exposure. Now, if you put this investment in, it might bring additional risks of, say, 2 million, but you're also reducing risk by, say, 20 million. So suddenly you've got an 18 million benefit and overall you're reducing the risk position. So what I'm finding fascinating and what this client, it's really going to help them is at a board level or an executive level, having that conversation in a terminology that everyone understands. The board, CFO, CEO, CRO, CISO, CIO, everyone understands dollars. If we can say 50 million risk exposure plus two for the new increased risk, but minus 20 with this investment, this is your net risk exposure. It's a very easy and simple conversation to make a decision that considers risk and reward. And more importantly, it's making sure that the organizations are getting their return on investment. And I think that's what I'm happy with this client, that once we've implemented this with them, they are going to find that the aggregated risk view, the understanding of what level of risk they have and how to make decisions, it's going to become so much easier, less paperwork and business cases. That's a good one. Now, let's take a different aspect and a different turn on in terms of the risk aspect itself. So, in my view, I believe that, I equally believe that not taking any risk is the biggest risk itself. Now, if we were to apply this concept to the adoption of data science and AI technology by corporation, do you think they can take some calculated risk to safeguard their future? I absolutely think they can. And I think that's where if we can quantify the risk and make it all in the same terminology, rather than the previous methods where we've gone red, amber, green, high, medium, low. It's a bit of subjectivity. What I feel like on that day, if I've had a bad day, I might be more negative. There's been a cyber attack. Maybe I'm a bit more negative or maybe we come out of lockdown. I'm feeling a bit more positive. It's more green. By having that risk quantification language around speaking the same language and being able to quantify it, I think we certainly can. At the same time, what's going to be important is two steps. It's the same quantification language, but secondly, also a mindset of that we are identifying new risks. So with AI and machine learning, new risks around ethics, biases are coming through, and we need to make sure we've got a mindset where we are identifying new emerging risk. Because if we do just one of these two things, it's not going to work something's going to break down. So in my mind, these two are essential ingredients. Now, extending on that topic, I think appropriate upskilling for the employees in adopting this new technology and also the emerging risk management is equally important. So what do you think the senior management can do more in this space? It's a really topical area. If you just go through your LinkedIn feed, you would see 
the amount of organizations that are talking about upskilling. You've got governments in Asia and Australia making grants to help the workforce upskill. I would say to address the skills gap, which is why we are all trying to upskill because there is a gap in these new skills area that are needed. I actually think there are individuals have a role to play. Companies have a role to play. Professional associations need to have a role to play and the government. So I think all four have a role to play. But if we zoom in on um, sort of the organisations and my personal experience on this is I'll sort of share two perspectives on this. If we look at COVID, when COVID hit first time last year, how many organisations were able to move people internally in roles that had less volume? Sales were down in some organisations perhaps recruitment was down. So could you move auditors or recruitment or salespeople into other roles? For example, we saw a lot of people in audit get moved into risk because there was a lot more risk and crisis management work. And they have similar transferable skills, but needed some upskilling. We saw a lot of people in sales that already knew how to deal with customers, were familiar with the processes, were able to help with uh, calls out to clients who were in need of help. So I think we've already seen a really good example during COVID where organisations were quickly adapting and getting their people to work in different areas. So I think the number one is for organisations, you did that very quickly during COVID If you can do it that quickly and agile in COVID, why not do something similar on an ongoing basis to upskill your workforce? Why not give people a very clear upskilling path and a way for them to learn? The second part of that is, okay, well, that's great. We'll upskill people. A CEO or board might say, we'll upskill, but what type of upskilling do they need? How do we do it? is probably the next question. And again, I'll go back to our childhood. If we think about as kids, how do kids learn when like we send them to school or even before school? I don't know about people listening, but certainly I had a lot of excursions. There were play dates, there were Lego sets, there were playing in the sandpit. There were all sorts of science experiments and trying things which was very free form and engaging. I remember as a kid, any excursion or anywhere museum where we had interactive sessions and I would get to learn, touch and feel and play around. It used to be fun as a kid, rather than just sitting in a classroom the whole day with a textbook, pen and paper. I compare those two and I think most kids would agree, being out there learning rather than just sitting And so I think we need to think about for adults, what is adult learning going to be like? What is adult upskilling going to be? Is it going to be sitting on a Zoom or WebEx or Teams call where we for eight hours are just listening to someone talking and that's going to be fun and engaging? I don't think it's going to be. (laughs) Or is it going to be just listening to an online course for two weeks and suddenly I will be an expert at something. And I think that's where we need to think about there is an awareness where we learn from awareness, but how do we get hands-on experience like we used to as a kid? We can get awareness sitting in a classroom, listening to online webinars, 
but how do we get hands-on experience? And I think that's the challenge that organisations and government and third professional associations need to think about so that they get the right upskilling outcomes. On the other token, do you think that as an employee or as an analyst, they should take more initiative in upskilling themselves? If so, how, how should they voice out and how should they take this sort of initiative while making sure that they are completing all the tasks they have got at hand? Yeah, look, it's a hard one. And I think it comes down to, again, as I said at the beginning, I'm very passionate about purpose. If I know why something is important and why it's needed, then I generally seem to find the time. And so I would say, yes, I agree. Individuals, it is up to us as well. No one can do that learning for us. It's the same. No one can go to school or uni for us and do the degree and suddenly we know the knowledge. We have to do the hard work, right? So it's kind of also when we decide we want to lose weight, we hire a personal trainer, you have a coach who works with you, but you have to do the hard work. So I think with upskilling, it's the same concept as a personal trainer and an individual. You've got someone who's guiding you. It's practical. You've got to make it fun and engaging. Otherwise, who's going to wake up at 6 a.m. for a PT session? (laughs) Who's going to stick to the healthy eating and diet? As an individual, you need to be motivated. You need to know why you want to upskill. And you've got to put the hard yards in. It might be waking up at 6 a.m. It might be a class after work, but you also need to find the PT equivalent. Now, is it just an online university course? Is it an online learning program? Or is it other immersive sessions where you get some real work outcomes? I think it's about finding the right upskilling partner that can actually help you with that. I agree. And I think perhaps also incorporating their own career goals into the uh, some of the works that they could be given more opportunity in doing. That, that is probably also one of the suggestions. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> now, in a world where data is becoming more important than ever before, what do you think would be the core principle that a leader should follow to build a modern res- resilient organization? Oh, wow. So if we if we extend that forward, it's a very relevant question right now as we're coming out of COVID. In a sense, that resilience is all about how we respond. How do we come back to bounce back from the hard times? And I think as a leader, if I draw upon my experience, I've worked through catastrophe events where, when I was in insurance. And I think there are two key principles, the prepare, how do you prepare for it? And then how do you respond And the prepare part for me is really that whole security and risk by design. And it's also have we upskilled? Are we constantly learning and getting our people technically and non-technically ready for new things that suddenly there are now supply chain cyber attacks? Tomorrow could be a new type. So how do we prepare by continuously upskilling and are always thinking about the security and risks involved. That's for me is the preparedness that any leader can do. And then how we respond. And that's where I find that when you have a catastrophe or an event, it's not just one team that's responsible. You generally have to draw upon multiple different areas of an organization. And so I say it's down to the culture of the organization. Are they collaborative? 
what is the purpose and accountability? How do we how do we connect and bring people together with clear purpose and accountabilities and a culture where people are willing to cross collaborate? Because none of the events that I've been part of in my career has relied on just one team. It's required risk people, crisis management. It's had legal, it's had HR, finance, data, technology. You've needed an expert from each area and together you form that crisis team that responds. And those people coming together needs to be based on a purpose clear accountability and a culture where they feel and want to collaborate to save the organization and get out and be resilient. Good one. Now, this almost come to the end of this podcast interview. And these are the two questions I have got for you. Okay. It feels <laughs> no. like a bit of rapid fire round now. <laughs> no, no, no. These are easy questions. Number one, what is your most important first principle? I would say it has to be purpose. I think that's one thing you would have heard me say throughout. It is really, why am I doing something? Why do we exist? Why are we doing something? Without that purpose, there is no sort of direction or context. And for me, I find that whenever I've been in really tough situations, if I'm not believing in the purpose, it's really hard to then fight through that tough time. So I think purpose for me is a very big thing. Speaking of purpose, I think that is this whole idea about so-called the purpose-driven organization. It seems to be becoming more of a really the one that is catching the headline these days. I think there are many of them as an example that would be, say, Tesla. What is the purpose? The purpose is creating uh, clean energy. Would you say these are the organization that will be much more attracting the younger generation or perhaps other people in joining them to achieve their mission? I would actually say yes. I've worked for a number of organizations and knowing and seeing IBM's purpose around being relevant and having an impact to society with the technology and how we do that, you can connect with it and it makes sense. But then it's also about how your leader and it's how it's translated down and does it relate to your role as well? So I think, yes, you can attract people based on the company statement and absolutely believe in that. I believe in IBM's purpose. You also then need to have the leaders underneath cascading it down and it can resonate with people in their role and in their team. So if organizations just get the first part right, they will attract people. But if they can't translate it for the team or the role, then I think they will struggle to keep those people. So there's an attracting people, but then also to keep them based on the purpose. My final question for you is, what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Oh, that is actually a really tough question. I love reading. I, um, Whenever I can, I read a lot of autobiographies. I love learning from different people. So whether it's uh, Michelle Obama, Richard Branson, any of these autobiographies lately I'm thinking would be great because there are so much to learn. So I don't think I can put one book. I would say it's more. I wish I had read a lot more autobiographies early on in my career to learn of some of the failures, the mindset and how people 
pick themselves up and respond to things and all the learnings that you get when you read these autobiographies from other people. Thank you so much for that. And uh, once again, thank you so much, Anil, for this podcast interview. Uh, I think I really learned so much more about the uh, data risk management and uh, the three U framework that you have got. No, thank you so much, Jason. It was absolutely fantastic talking to you and really glad to be here.